One day, and I am really irritated and looking for a little sympathy. And there's Bernie laying on the couch, drinking a beer and chewing. No, not chewing, popping. So I said to him, I said, Bernie, if you pop that gum one more time. <laughs> and he did. So I took the shotgun off the wall and I fired two warning shots into his head. Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 2nd, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, I think we are officially allowed to talk about this now. So um, on Saturday, January 12th at 11.15 a.m., the three of us plus a number of our friends, Matt Tamanini and Jenna Tessa Fox and Jan Simpson, Natalie Nowak, we're all going to be at Broadway Con doing This Week on Broadway live at the uh, New York Hilton Midtown. We'd love to see everybody there and uh, spend an hour with us from 11.15 to 12.15 and uh, see how the sausage is made, if you will. Uh-huh. It probably won't be a typical type of show because we're going to have a bunch of people on stage with us. We'll, I, I think the thought is right now we're going to talk about the upcoming uh, spring season, do a little Q&A from the audience, also maybe do a little trivia contest. I uh, have to work out the details with Peter. I haven't told him about that yet. So uh, Perfectly fine. All right. So um, get over to broadwaycon.com and sign up for uh, our our session, and we'd love to all see you there and drop us an email let you know that we're there. First up in the, in the review section, uh, Peter, you got to see the Illusionists uh, making their third, maybe fourth trip to, to Broadway. What is this? And so tell us, how'd that go? Fourth trip, in fact. Yes, indeed. Um, Jack Singer. Uh, Rob McClure in Honeymoon in Vegas has a very witty line in his opening number that Jason Robert Brown gave him. Um, I like Broadway once a year. Well, I like magic once a year. And the illusion has certainly uh, filled that bill because, as we say, for the last four years, they've been here, there and everywhere on Broadway. Uh, This year, they're at the Marquee Theater until Tootsie gets in there. And um, they're quite, quite impressive, needless to say. Now, um, I will admit that at the beginning I was a little uh, taken aback because um, Adam Trent, who's the guy who really put this together, um, (laughs) makes a piano appear out of nowhere. That's great. And we applaud. We're really impressed. And then stagehands come out and get rid of it. Um, If you can bring it on, why can't you bring it off, Adam? I mean, I was a little confused by that. But but anyway, uh, he he, uh, certainly did the job at least part of the way in getting it out there. So, But really, making a piano come out of nowhere, I mean, these guys are really good. Um, Sometimes the tricks may be not something you really want to see. For example, there's um, a card trick guy who takes a lot of cards out of his mouth, you know, and I mean, uh, you might find that a little unappetizing. I, I certainly did. Um, but, you know, we're all different people. Um, there's, a, there's a woman who really uh, deals a lot with birds and does a tremendous job with birds. And I had to remind myself that there was a time, if she were in England, they would have called her a bird because that was the term used in the 60s uh, for women. So anyway, she puts razor blades in her mouth. 
and uh, takes them out. And I was a little worried she'd swallow them, and for the rest of her life she'd sound like Harvey Firestein. But but she seems to have uh, gotten away with it, at least at the performance I was there. So so that was pretty good. Uh, it's a good show for kids, of course it is, um, who kids seem to be more impressed by magic uh, than, than adults who are greatly impressed by magic. So, so the kids are there. I will say that um, you might want to uh, be careful because um, at the performance I was at, uh, one person um, said, not that it was so loud, but we can all read lips because there are so many video uh, screens around the theater. There's a big one on stage, and then there are other ones here and there. And uh, the guy said the famous expression, whose initials are WTF, which is a perfectly valid response, considering the guy is doing such wonderful tricks up there. But in case you uh, don't want to see your kids um, experience anybody saying uh, WTF in uh, (laughs) full-blown language, uh, you might want to think about that, too. Uh, It is fun to see the video close-ups, though. It, it makes the magic that much more impressive. I mean, after all, uh, it's one thing to to be in Rosie in in the Marquee Theater, and you think, well, maybe uh, that isn't such an impressive trick. If I were right up there, I'd be able to see um, where the the strings are, so to speak. But no, not at all. I mean, really, um, seeing those close-ups, you're even more impressed. So um, I think that's really quite quite a nice idea that they do it, and it is part of the rock show mentality that we have these big screens now that most uh, people really need that. I mean, I can't imagine more impressive tricks uh, than I see on this stage. But, of course, I guess if I could imagine uh, impressive tricks, I'd be a magician myself. So, of course, the patter that these people use is never as good as the tricks, needless to say. But um, this may be the Broadway show that gets the most applause because the tricks are really so astonishing. That said... I have to say, given the fact that they're on Broadway, and given that there are so many card tricks, you know what card trick I'd like to see? I'd like to see uh, a brand new deck of cards on which the seal isn't broken. And then um, the magician says that he can make a jack of spades jump out of this brand new deck of cards and squirt cider in someone's (laughs) ear. (laughs) Because this is something that Sky Masterson refers to in Guys and Dolls. And given the fact that we're in a Broadway theater and uh, Guys and Dolls is such an iconic Broadway musical, that would be a trick that I would like to see. Um, so that failing that, uh, believe me, there are plenty of good tricks at the Marquee Theater. And I think you'd be wise to go and uh, see it if, if magic is your thing once a year or even more. I haven't seen The Illusionists yet, but I did want to mention, I, I, I suppose maybe we mentioned it last week because it had just happened, the death of Ricky Jay. Yeah. Which right. is certainly germane to, to the discussion of magic. Sure is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's just someone who gave a tremendous amount of entertainment and pleasure to thousands and thousands of people. So rest in peace to Ricky Jay. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. All right, so that's The Illusionist, Magic of the Holidays uh, at the Marquee Theater. It's through December 30th, so uh, get over and check that out if magic is your thing. Uh, Next up, we're going to talk about Downstairs at Cherry Lane Theater. Michael and Peter both got a chance to see it, so Michael, why don't you start us off with this? Well, I was very glad to see it. I initially went primarily because it features the brother and sister team of Tyne Daly and Timothy Daly, who are, I mean, I say team, but in a way that's really not an accurate uh, word because they they have rarely, if ever, worked together in their careers. Uh, They say that they have always wanted to, and for whatever reasons, it it just has not really happened, except if you count maybe this brief appearances together. in certain things. So here they are in this play that has been written for them, specifically by Teresa Rebeck. And I uh, <clears throat> I go back to with Tim Daly to his first, I believe his first professional and certainly his first Broadway appearance, which was in a, a play called Coastal Disturbances decades ago, which also marked the debut of Annette Benning. So that was an incredible 
thing to be at, uh, you know, and talk about the ground floor. Um, that, so that was when I first became aware of Tim Daly. And then Tyne, um, I guess around that time, of course, became famous for her work on TV and Cagney and Lacey, and then went on to a really fabulous theater career, including one of the best Mama Roses in Gypsy that I've ever, ever seen, but lots of other roles as well. Uh, so here they are together in this play by Teresa Rebeck. And as I say, I primarily went because of the cast and the opportunity to see these two together. But also, I'm so happy to report that this is the best uh, Teresa Rebeck play that I that I've ever seen. I have major problems with most of her work, but here I, I would say only some minor minor plot issues. Maybe this is a really good play about a fellow, uh, a middle aged fellow, who is uh, temporarily living in his. Uh, sister's basement. He is um, unemployed at the moment, and he seems uh, – the whole first part of the the play, uh, the first scene is just him on stage, and, and he's, he's kind of walking around and trying to find a, a toothbrush to brush his teeth and, and a, try to find a, a bowl for his breakfast cereal, and uh, he is trying to make himself at home in this uh, – Basement, which, by the way, uh, an incredibly fabulously realistic set designed by Narelle Sissons. We walked into the Cherry Lane Theater, my friend and I, and my friend said, that really looks like a basement. <laughs> um, it It's just a perfect example of that kind of hyper-realistic set design. Really, really fantastic. So anyway um, – so then uh, this character, Teddy, uh, played by Tim Daly, is joined by his sister, Irene, played by Tyne Daly. And it becomes clear that Teddy, uh, to one reason, to one extent or another, is not he, – he has some mental issues, perhaps some mental emotional issues. Uh, we can tell that just from his conversation with his sister. So we know that um, – that that's maybe one reason why he's ended up in her basement because he's he's just really not that uh stable in in many ways uh but then uh we also eventually find out that Irene's relationship with her husband is very 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 fraught and he doesn't come on for a while but when he does uh he is brilliantly played by John Procaccino uh, in a in a chilling performance. This is the kind of role that I think actors uh, probably would kill for, pardon the expression, <laughs> uh, because he's um, he's a really well-written villain. He's a well-rounded villain, uh, well-rounded, but that doesn't mean he's any less despicable. And as as we learn more about him, we learn uh, just qu um, quite how creepy and horrible he is in, in many ways, including the fact that he's at least mentally, if not also physically abusive to his wife. Um, so anyway, I, I won't say too much more about the plot because that – is one of the most interesting things about the play. Uh, of course, it's brilliantly acted by these these three, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, this production, uh, Primary Stages production at the Cherry Lane, directed by Adrian Campbell Holt. All right, Peter, what did you think? I agree. Um, what I was really reminded of more than anything else is that we don't usually see many thrillers anymore. Um mm. Sex comedies have disappeared from Broadway, and so have thrillers. There was a time when they, they certainly were there, whether it be uh, Angel Street or the occasional Agatha Christie play, especially Witness for the Prosecution. And this doesn't quite make it as um, – define it as a thriller, but nevertheless, it – does provide the thrills as it goes on. Gets off to a tiny slow start, I'll grant you, um, because, of course, Tim Daly is such a passive character. Tim Daly plays a passive character, I should say. And you think it's really uh, going to be this just uh, sludgy, maybe even Harold Pintish Pinterest drama, but no, no. Um, suddenly, your your heart is in your mouth, as they say, and um, you really are very much invested and very fearful of what's going to go on. And that does happen when um, John Procaccino's uh, character comes on. And uh, I, I have to admit that uh, reading David Gordon's review in Theater Mania. Um, <laughs> I, I I was really wondering what he meant here because I'm going to quote from it. <sighs> 
Procaccino um, is a villain culled from the worst traits of Oscar Madison, Ralph Cramden, and Jeffrey Dahmer. In short, he's a straight white man, which is today the scariest antagonist of all. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure if he's being purposely ironic or what, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that was his take on it. But um, I'll tell you, the, the director here certainly did a phenomenal job in making us scared to death as to what was going to happen next. And, um, and that's what I really uh, thought was terrific, because that sleepy beginning certainly didn't continue to be sleepy. Who directed Michael? I don't remember. Oh, Adrian Campbell Holt. Nice job. Nice job indeed. You know, yeah. so, uh, so yeah, I think of all the Teresa Rebeck plays too. This is the one that impressed me the most as well. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she'll revive the thriller. Who knows? Fine with me. <laughs> uh, I, uh, was in London a, a bunch of years ago and is it woman in white, woman in black? What's the, th- oh yeah. What's that one in London? And then it came yeah, to yeah, New York yeah. and it didn't, it didn't do well here. Woman in white. <laughs> no, no, that's that was it, right? Woman, the no, woman, woman, in white. woman in white. It was an Andrew Lloyd Webber. Andrew musical. Lloyd Webber musical, but this is a play that's been running oh. forever on the West End. Woman uh, in black, indeed. W- yeah. Woman, well, I'm sorry. I thought because you know, woman in white is also kind of a, a thrill. Sure, sure. I thought that's what you meant. <laughs> no, there is a play called Woman in Black that really is truly terrible, and I don't know how it can possibly run over there. And I remember um, going to Centenary Stage in Hackettstown, where a very funny guy named Carl Walnaro has been running the show for more than a quarter century, and he's really done terrific work out there. But anyway, when he told me uh, he was doing it, I had already seen the play twice, you know, that I had to review, and oh. I said, oh, no, don't do that. Oh, it's so terrible. It's terrible. You know, and anyway, when I went out to see Woman in Black at Centenary, there he was greeting me. And I said, this is a black day for Centenary. And he he said, that's all we ask that you come with an open mind, you know. So so great guy. Really, Centenary Stage at at Hackettstown uh, is a terrific place. And they have a brand new theater. Well, it's a few years old now. But I'm telling you, that really is quite a show place. So, um if, if you're on Route 80, uh, get off at, uh, I think it's exit 26, and see what's going on in Hackettstown. It's a very, very, very nice theater. Oh, by the way, if I could take a moment to clear up a confusion from last week. I'm really embarrassed because Jane, uh, James was talking about how the uh, Angie Schwarer character in um, in The Prom reminded him from of Jane Krakowski in Third Rock. And I swear to God, I thought he said – uh, it, it, no, he said Jane Krakowski in 30 Rock. 30 Rock, yeah. And I thought he said Jane Krakowski in Third Rock, meaning Third Rock <laughs> the Sun. Ah. And I, that's why I was like, was Jane Krakowski a, 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 a regular on Third Rock from the Sun? <laughs> so the, so I was extremely confused, and I'm very sorry. I, I am aware that she was in 30 Rock and that she had a, <laughs> that she had a uh, continuing role in that. <laughs> Well, while we're doing that type of thing, uh, let me also say that I heard from Jake Leonard, uh, who uh, remembered an interview with Charles Strauss about the Star Wars musical. Mm. And um, and so he actually sent me a link. God love him. And um, I'm going to say here exactly what Charles Strauss said. We were asked to do it by the original producer, George Lucas. We were given a 90 page contract, 90 pages, God, with his company. And my lawyer discovered a phrase in which there was. Lucas had the right to say, I don't want to go on. So we pulled out, but Lucas gave us extra money. I remember the sum was 10000 to sign. And we wrote about five songs, which indeed he did call the contract. He never heard the songs as far as I know. He decided he was going to do the sequels instead. We used one of the songs, My Star, in Marty. I tend to circulate music, he says. Um, anybody who knows Charles Strauss's career knows that that's quite true. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so that's the real story there. So thank you, Jake Leonard, for straightening me out on that. So uh, we're doing a lot of pentimentos here, aren't we, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And there was Our- another one, but I can't remember it, so we'll let it go for now. <laughs> oh, we can always loop, loop back to it. All right, so uh, that is the Primary Stages production of Downstairs by Teresa Rebeck at the Cherry Lane. It's playing through December 22nd, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. 
Next up, uh, Peter got to see Wild Goose Dreams at Public Theater. Uh, okay. So, Peter, tell us about Wild Goose Dreams. Well, you know, uh, apparently when Oscar Eustace believes in a property, he certainly is willing to spend the money. Because I'm telling you, when you go into Martinson Hall, the entire theater's walls have been covered with all sorts of um, <laughs> pictures that in- indicate uh, we're, we're certainly in the Far East. And um, and this play has, uh, what, two, four, six, eight, ten people in it. Uh, and... Uh, so many people make appearances every now and then uh, with a costume that you never see again, um, an Elvis type costume. People come on wearing wings that Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life would love to have. I'm telling you, it, very expensive production. Um, so the question becomes, um, is it worth the money? Uh, well, yes and no. I will tell you that this um, play, though it runs an hour 45 – could have really been accomplished with 45 minutes less. And I think it would have been to the play's uh, great, great credit if it had been shortened because it's so easy to take out the parts that are truly, truly boring. And that is there is a lot of talk about computer ease. People are doing uh, binary codes a lot. They're saying one oh 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 one 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 oh 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 That happens endlessly in this play. It's really a type of Romeo and Juliet story uh, dealing with a guy named Min Sung who's called a goose father. Now that's uh, somebody who is still supporting his family while he's living in uh, it's South Korea, by the way. Uh, he's living in South Korea and he's still supporting his family who is um, over in the United States. And this is something that uh, happens a lot to the point at which there actually is a name for it, a goose father. So, um, uh, of course, the question becomes, does absence makes the heart grow fonder, or is it a case of out of sight, out of mind? So is he going to be loyal to his wife, uh, or is he going to um, meet somebody on the Internet and uh, start a, an affair there? Uh, it, well, of course, there wouldn't be much of a play if he just sat still in this apartment and didn't do anything. So in comes Nan He. Uh, now, she's somebody who comes from North Korea, and she's defected. So um, she has a few issues, too. So what's going to happen to these two people? I'm going to certainly um, not tell you. I will say that there is a bit of a surprise in the way that this relationship works out or doesn't work out. But uh, I, I also have to say that Lee Silverman, who's really a tremendous director, has directed too many of the people far, far upstage. And um, this is a play that really needs to be as intimate as it can possibly be. But um, an occasional good line, I have to say, I used to um, he, he, this is um, Min Sung's talking about his daughter overseas in the United States. I used to poke my daughter on Facebook all the time until she blocked me. Well, that tells you something about what's going to happen in this relationship, I think. So um, uh, it, we've all had imaginary friends when we were children. Gee, I hope we did. I, I, I have to admit I did. Well, anyway. Um, but uh, here's a 20-something woman. I'm talking about Nan He who seems to have an imaginary father. And that comes up with a lot of um, uh, <laughs> problems as well, needless to say. Um, you'll also hear the strangest toilet flush in perhaps in theatrical history, and that has something to do with the show as well. So, But so many irrelevant characters come on just for a tiny second or two. And again, um, I, I think this is uh, a one-act play that really wants to put on big boy pants and be a full-length play, but it really, really isn't. And um, I would love to cut away the chaff and get to the wheat, because when the wheat is there, it's very, very good indeed. Okay, so that's Wild Drew Streams at the Public Theater. It's playing through December 16th. Next up, Michael got over to Wagner College to see Everybody. Was everybody there, Michael? Everybody who was everybody was there. Anybody. <laughs> everybody who was anybody. Everybody who was anybody was there. <laughs> so how was it? It was really good. This was a play that I had seen uh, not long ago in February 2017 at Signature uh, 
a play by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. And I think this may be the quickest turnaround that I've ever seen uh, for a, you know, a professional production of a play in New York and then a, a college production. But obviously the rights are available, and I'm so glad they did it. This is a, a modern-day interpretation of the ancient everyman story uh, by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. And I really, really liked it when it was done at Signature with a fabulous cast, including people like Louis Canselmi and Mary Louise Burke. And so I thought I would really like to see it at Wagner, and they did a not surprisingly excellent job with it, directed by Mickey Tenenbaum. This was not on their main stage theater. They have a, a, a separate... Uh, space that they called Stage One, uh, you know, the equivalent of an off-Broadway space. And it's interesting because it's in uh, the structure that it was in uh, apparently used to be either a a wrestling room or a weight room. (laughs) So uh, that's been reconfigured and into a really nice, uh, you know, intimate little black box space. And the cast was just super. Um, this, uh, the, the uh, intriguing thing about this play as written is that uh, only some of the uh, actors, only a few of the actors play specified roles and, and stick with those roles throughout the run. Uh, in this case, uh, the roles of uh, the usher, God and understanding were played by Kirsten Kaiser. Death was played by Drew Matthews. Um, there's a, a little girl, a character and, uh, who also plays Time. And that was played by Lucy Schnall. And then Love was played by Angie Kokutsa. But then we also have um, five somebodies. Uh, Kevin Atwater, Savannah Beckford, L.B. Cespedes, Madeline Kendall, and Bill Weatherby. And the the gimmick here is that at the start of each performance, they draw lots to see which role they're going to play. Um, uh, And those roles include uh, friendship, uh, strength, uh, cousinship, beauty, uh, stuff, um, you know, a person's material possessions. Because the plot of every man, for those who don't know it, is that every man is, uh, is, uh, is about to die and being called to account for himself or herself. And uh, the question is, what, if anything, is going to accompany every man, uh, you know, beyond the grave? Uh, what, what, if anything, can he or she uh, take with him or her? Uh, so that is that was the play is a, a series of meetings with all of these, uh, you know, all of these attributes that that. Uh, this person has and, and see if, if, if he if he or she is going to go alone uh, to death or if something is going to come with him. And it's a timeless, needless to say, timeless, timeless tale, uh, given a really, really excellent modern spin by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Uh, the The dialogue is wonderfully, wonderfully natural in a very, very, very modern up to the minute way. As I say, I, I, I only saw this uh, – about a year ago <laughs> off Broadway. So it's a very recent play, hot off the presses and, uh, and you know, and, and then picked up by Wagner College. Uh, as, since this was a, um, a stage one production, they only had one weekend. So today actually is the last day. So I'm afraid you won't be able to get to it. But I, I did just want to report on it because they did such a wonderful job with it. And I think it was an excellent choice uh, to begin with. So uh, I, whether the director, Mickey Pen- Tenenbaum, picked it or, or the department head, it was really, really a good choice. And I recommend it to other um, uh, colleges and community theater groups because it's a wonderful, wonderful play. Okay. So as Michael said, uh, the last performance is this afternoon at 2 p.m. You're probably not going to be able to get there <laughs> if you're listening to this. Uh, but, you know, maybe you get the broadcast right away and <laughs> on Sunday afternoon and you happen to live on Staten Island. So, <laughs> or downtown Manhattan and jump yes, on the ferry. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, next up, uh, Peter, you wanted to talk about the Fred Ebb Awards. So tell us uh, what's your thoughts on this. 
Yeah, God bless Fred Ebb, who um, ironically has a nephew who certainly heads the ceremony every year that's held at the American Airlines Theater's upstairs uh, lounge, penthouse lounge. And, you know, when you think of it, he has a nephew and he's very proud of his uncle. And why shouldn't he be? I mean, after all, all the wonderful hits and Tony Award winning musicals, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, and yet Fred Ebb wanted to leave money to uh, songwriters and does every year um, a, a panel. Um, Sheldon Harnick is usually one of the judges decides uh, on who should get it. This year it was Will Reynolds and Eric Price who got the uh, award and they just did three selections from two shows they're working on. One is a musical version of The Violet Hour which is kind of interesting because it wasn't that long ago we saw that play by Richard Greenberg at the Friedman Theater. Uh, Manhattan Theater Club did it. Two lovely songs and then they're also working on a musical called Radioactive which is about Madame Curie and they did a very funny uh, song that really shows these guys um, have great imaginations because as it turned out, you actually had to cook radium. And so they had a song, I mean, like in a pot, you know, and stirring and all that kind of stuff. And so they had a song where she was cooking a meal as well as cooking the radium, you know, one, stirring with each hand, you know, uh, doing both. So they're terrific songwriters and on the basis of these three songs. And nobody went out of, I, I can't imagine anybody went out of there saying, my God, why did they give it to those guys? Those songs were, no, those songs were really, really good. But it's really quite wonderful that this um, foundation goes on. And not only that, um, it was announced that Fred Ebb also uh, left money. This uh, It was the foundation this year decided to give $2 million to Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. So um, some people have said, oh, will Chicago ever close? Oh, my God. Well, I'm never going to go into the Ambassador Theater again in my lifetime. It's never going to close. Well, uh, here's a, a tangible reason why we should be glad that uh, Chicago is still running because indeed people like um, Will Reynolds and Eric Price benefit from it, but so does Broadway Care Equity Fights AIDS. So God bless Fred Ebb and uh, may his name live forever. And in, certainly in the annals of Broadway, we have every reason to believe it, it will. Well, you know, with regard to Chicago, it has moved three, three times. So, yeah, and I know. Really. So you can get it back into the ambassador and still have Chicago still on Broadway. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It, it, it did make the rounds. Yeah, I mean, it started with the Richard Rogers and then went to the flagship theater of the Schubert organization, which is called the Schubert, of course, uh, until it moved to the ambassador, where it has really taken up quite residence. It's been there longer than any of the other two stops. Uh, and it's just amazing to me how it still goes. I mean, one could say, uh, well, you know, back in the early 2000s that um, – People were curious because they saw the movie, and um, I'd love to see it on stage. But that movie, you know, uh, is a little long in the tooth now. So, um, mm. but still, people go, and um, and as I say, for this reason alone, we should be grateful. On that note, of course, there was that unfortunate, very, very sad uh, publicity some months ago when one of the members of the cast of Chicago committed suicide. And I, I'm not sure what happened with that. It seemed that there were some investigations at the time, and then I have not heard anything in a long time. So perhaps it was decided that that was just a really tragic thing that happened and that just was not necessarily anything that anyone involved with Chicago was responsible for in any way. But, um, sure. I, you know, I mean, as I say, we, uh, we haven't heard anything lately. Maybe we'll hear something again or maybe it's just kind of done with. But Chicago as a piece of work, it's, it's, it's just one of the most fascinating stories, I think, in theater history. Yeah. The, way, the way it, you know, it just, you know, it was never a flop, but it just didn't quite grab everyone and the first time uh as a as a phenomenon and then the revival did because of timing and and what was going on in the world and also the fact that the production was so amazing and so here we are uh, with the <laughs> longest running american musical mm -hmm. so uh chicago is uh their grosses they still are selling at in the 80s and 90% of the capacity of the theater. Uh, last week, they were at 97% of the capacity of the theater. Their grosses are not quite in the million-dollar mark, which has become the new standard. Um, um, they are playing in the six and 700,000. So uh, it could be that Chicago would wrap up at the Ambassador in the next couple of years as 
as the the play the the playing field for meeting minimum grosses is seems to be above the million dollar mark there, and they're not really doing that. Although it's uh, quite a run, and it has employed a number of people on and off stage uh, uh, over the years. Uh, and oh, but a, but James, that's that's all all relative to running costs, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, it, it's you know, it if it were up to the producers, the producers would keep would keep running it as long as they are making money. But the theater owners can easily say, "This is not making enough money. You need to get out," because they get a percentage. Well, the theater owners are paid uh, a, a a rental fee for the theater based upon the sales. Based so, upon the sales, yes. Yeah. So, okay, I got you. Yes, so got uh, most, uh, you know, when you rent a theater, the uh, theater owners, you know, have a clause in there called a stop clause. If you hit, a, if you go below a certain number and stay below a certain number and you're not trending upwards with advanced sales, the theater owner can close the show, not the producer. Right, got you. So, sure. And um, I saw a really funny meme on Facebook that was uh, that was uh, talking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, right. <laughs> uh, leaving the White House in 2018 at the end of 2018, and somebody wrote, "It's only a couple of weeks before she's Roxy Hart." <laughs> <laughs> it was a very very funny thing that I saw. <laughs> okay, so let's move forward. Um, I have been vamping as long as possible to try to figure out how to pronounce this because Michael told me four times before we started. Il Tritico? Tritico? Tritico. Tritico. Il Tritico. <laughs> uh, Puccini's three-part journey is now at the Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael saw it. So, Michael, tell us uh, about Il Tritico. Yeah, well, first of all, the word is the Italian word for triptych, and that, that's what we have here, three one-act operas, uh, Il Tabaro, Suor Angelica, and Gianni Schicchi. I guess they become more difficult to pronounce as you go through. Uh, but uh, this is um, a wonderful, wonderful Met production by uh, directed by Jack O'Brien, uh, our old friend, and it's been in the repertoire this production has for several years now. Uh, now would be a really, really great time to see it, uh, specifically because Plastido Domingo is singing the role of Johnny Skiki, uh, which is a baritone role. He now sings uh, uh, only baritone roles, I believe. Uh, he is, actually didn't look up his age, but he is, I think, about 80. Uh, and he's long past the age where opera singers normally retire. They don't tend to have careers as long as people in the theater because it's hard to keep up that, that level of uh, intense singing in, as one gets older. But he is a phenomenon in that respect. He, uh, you wouldn't believe how good he sounds <laughs> in this role. Um, so I, and it's, it's a fabulous production. Uh, the operas themselves are so, so beautiful. The first one is about, uh, Il Tabaro is about a, an unhappy marriage and a love triangle and a murder that occurs, uh, because of that. Um, the second one, Swan Angelica is about a, a nun in a convent, uh, who has not had contact with her, uh, family for years. And then it turns out in the end, her aunt comes to visit her to tell her that, uh, her child has died. It, it, we, we learned very late that the reason Swar Angelica is in the convent is because she had a baby out of wedlock. Uh, so that is what happens. And then she finds this out and she kills herself and, then realizes that in killing herself, she has committed a mortal sin, and so she won't be reunited with her child in heaven, uh, or will she? That is that is what happens in the last five minutes of that opera, which is one of the most overwhelming emotional experiences you'll ever have. And then Johnny Skiki is a wonderful light comedy about uh, an old man who dies, and his uh, relatives learn that he's giving most of his money to the church, and they don't like they don't want that to happen. <laughs> so they um, they scheme to uh, kind of rewrite the will. Uh, and that is the opera that contains the 
incredibly famous aria, O Mio Babino Caro, uh, sung beautifully in the current Met production by a, a woman named Christina McTarian. Uh, so I, 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 there are several more performances of Il Tritico. Uh, I, if you would like to see something at the Met, this would be an excellent choice. And I have to say again that if you know how to do it, you can just experience the Met for not a lot of money. I've already talked about the rush tickets, which are $25 for any unsold seat. Uh, those are n somewhat difficult to get. You have to just go online and be ready at the exact moment at noon, uh, uh, you know, each day to click on and see if, if you can get a ticket, uh, you know, in, fr in front of the hundreds of other people who are going to be trying to do the same thing at the same time. But um, the Met also has some uh, really, really good deals. Uh, they have uh, balcony box seats, which are considered p uh, partial view because they're at a huge angle. But uh, you're not necessarily missing anything except part of the set. Uh, you know, the uh, the if you sit house, let's say if you sit house right, you'll be missing the uh, the the part of the set that is uh, back that is upstage and house left. But there isn't necessarily a lot going on, you know, as far as action in those places. So uh, I really recommend these seats if you can get them because they are forty five dollars. Uh, I mean that is the that is the full price. So so you can get just go online at any time uh, or to the box office and get a ticket for that price uh, without having to wait for any kind of a rush situation. And uh, although they are at an angle, they're also very close to the stage, some more than others. So you can actually see people's facial expressions and feel like you're really really up against the action. And you can also watch the orchestra at work because the orchestra is is pretty much below you, uh, like directly below you. So I, I really, I really would, uh, I guess it's sort of a well-kept secret, these tickets. Uh, but there you are. I've just told you about them. Uh, uh, please, please go and check them out. To see Placido Domingo for $45. Exactly, exactly. Oh, and I, I have to uh, say, uh, there are three operas, as I said, in Il Tritico. Uh, Gianni Schicchi is the third one, uh, so Domingo was not scheduled to appear uh, uh, until the third one. And not only that, he's only in the second half of the third one. Uh, so, But uh, there are two intermissions in Il Tritico, so that we, we, we saw... Um, we saw Il Tabaro and there was an intermission and then we saw uh, Swan Angelica and there was an intermission and then we came back and we all took our seats and right before the opera was about to start, uh, the, the lights went down and uh, lights came up uh, on the curtain and the and a woman walked out with a microphone and everyone started to groan in the audience. And, and the woman, she was so wonderful. She must have been a stage manager. She said, no, it's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> and and all she uh, did was announce that the tenor for the evening uh, had a cold, and he he begged our indulgence. Uh, but there was a moment there where people were like, "Oh my God, yeah, yeah, yeah." Uh, but I, I don't know if you know this. The last night of Funny Girl on Broadway. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. The last Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand performance. Uh, they there was announcements, ladies and gentlemen, at tonight's performance, the role of Fanny Bryce will be played by Barbara. You know, was, <laughs> I tell you, she loves to torture us. She just does. So, <laughs> oh, I, Ethan Morton has a new book about Barbara Streisand. I just got in the mail yesterday. Oh. Um, I think it's called On Streisand. Uh, Oxford University Press put it out. Um, it's not a very big book uh, in terms of pages, but um, anyway, um, Ethan has certainly had opinions about Barbara Streisand in the past. One that comes to mind immediately is uh, his his saying. But with Streisand, guess what she wants from you? She is through with you. So uh, with that type of um, statement in one of the previous books, we may have a lot of controversial stuff in this book, too. Again, I haven't opened it. I don't know. But um, it, it may not be a hagiography. Um, and, well, I don't um, think so. I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. But anyway, uh, that, that came in the mail yesterday, so I, I should mention that. Something to look forward to. Michael, I thought when she came out with the microphone uh, in between acts, she was going to do a Broadway Cares request. 
Uh, right. <laughs> you know. Sure. <laughs> no, but she was so wonderful. Uh, she her timing was perfect. She's like, "No, it's all right. Don't worry." <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's move forward. Um, Peter, you got to the Prospect Theatre Company's production of The Hello Girls at 59 East 59, so tell us about that. It's terrific beyond belief. Uh, first off, Peter Mills and Kara Reichel, who are actually a married couple, do tremendous work together, and they are so prolific. I mean, every time you turn around, they got a new show. And I'm really sorry that um, it seems to be these limited engagements uh, seem to be all that happens to them, and they really deserve so much more. And uh, this is one of the best ones yet. Um, Peter Mills does the music um, and uh, the lyrics, and this is a book that he and um, Kara Reichel wrote together. Together. She directs, but I'm telling you, what a team. And so this is about an obscure piece of American history that I dare say most people don't know about. Back in World War I, uh, the show was set in 1918, which is interesting for its own sake because we're really talking about 100 years ago on the button. Um, the, the Army needed telephone operators in France. Uh, to get messages through, and they thought about asking telephone operators in America to uh, join the cause. And now this is pretty interesting because these ladies who would do this job would really be right there in, in, in harm's way. So they had to be very courageous. And as it turns out, uh, not every one of them would turn out to be courageous. You know, it's it seemed, oh, you know, come to France, land and love of laughter. Oh, I've always wanted to see Paris, all that stuff. But, you know, a war's going on, and uh, at least one of the women uh, finds that she's over her head. Um, but the one we really focus on is a woman named Grace Banker. That may not sound like um, a very you know, mellifluous name. But the reason she's called Grace Banker is because it's based on Grace Banker. And by the end of the show, you will actually see her picture projected on the wall. All these women um, actually were based on the real people who um, were, were in there. So under those circumstances, uh, we're looking at five women, really. Um, Grace is the one who's the best of uh, in, in terms of her ability to deal with um, the switchboard, but she also shows some great leadership qualities, and she's also played by a, a terrific actress, not long out of University of Michigan, where they do tremendous training there. Uh, Ellie Fishman is her name, and she's really quite wonderful playing this strong woman who is given responsibility more than she's ever had before, and she's going to live up to it, even if it means... You know, the problem, of course, when you when you have responsibilities, the people under you um, sometimes resent what you're, the decisions you make. And she's going to have to run into that because all these women want to be friends. But when one has chosen, Grace, to be the leader, well, then that separates the friendship, doesn't it? Um, it becomes a very professional thing. So um, all the women are interesting because um, uh, one, Suzanne, is uh, one who really – more than anybody else, um, convinces Grace that she should do this. Uh, Grace uh, is intrigued by it, but I don't think she would have done it had her friend Suzanne said, come on, let's do it together. And again, the problem arises when Grace gets more responsibility, and here's Suzanne, who got her over there in the first place. Then there's Bertha, um, a name that used to be very popular with women, and um, perhaps, thank God, is no longer. Anyway, um, Bertha uh, is somebody who's married. Um, her husband's overseas, and she really feels like if he's fighting, I want to be a part of the cause too. And that's that's a really good um, characterization as well. Then there's Louise, who um, was born in France. She came to America, and now she wants to go back because she wants to help her country, and that makes certain sense too. And um, and then there's Helen, and she uh, comes from Iowa um, or Idaho. I'm not sure which. <laughs> it went by very quickly. But um, she uh, she's one of 20 children. Can you imagine? Uh, not much to do in either Iowa or Idaho back in 1918, I guess. Or, well, the... <laughs> <laughs> the end of the 20th century. It takes a while to come out with 20 kids. But um, so all the women are very, very interesting, and all the women are very good at playing instruments, which is, um, yes, that John Doyle thing is in effect here. And of all the times I've ever seen it, this is the time when it's bothered me the least. Somehow these instruments really look so natural in um, these women's hands. And 
Um, Bertha, especially played by Lily Thomas, you know, playing the trumpet. I mean, you know, good Lord, you know, who expects that? I mean, yeah, Catherine Wake, who plays Louise, plays the clarinet. And that's sort of like an instrument you, you, you see women playing more than uh, a trumpet. But uh, this lady can bump it with a trumpet, I'll tell you. She's really, really good at it. And um, they're all wonderful. And the adventures they have certainly um, come up when they have to deal with uh, the lieutenant who's in charge of them. And there's a lot of talk about how in the military you know, there's certainly a pecking order and you have to follow it. And that's all there is to it. You know, face it. You have to take orders from him who has to take orders from General Pershing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that has a lot to do whether or not um, when things go bad, whether or not they should go over uh, the lieutenant's head. Um, and this, of course, is Grace's responsibility, um, whether or not this will happen. I truly was in tears at the end. Um, I'm not going to say what happens at the end. And you may infer <laughs> um, – I, I bet if you're inferring what could happen at the end of this, um, that I dare say you'd be wrong. But uh, I truly was in tears. And it's a wonderful show. And Peter Mills is such a deft lyricist. Uh, it, not only does he go for perfect rhymes, he goes for so many interior rhymes. It's just amazing to me how well he is. He really is one of our major – major, major lyric writing talents, and his music's terrific too. So um, I, I do think The Hello Girls is uh, wonderful. I just, It deserves to move, certainly. I hope there's an audience for it, because we are talking about a serious subject here. Uh, there is humor involved, certainly, certainly. But, but... Um, if in case it doesn't, please get to um, 59 East 59th Street, which is a lovely theater. In case you haven't been there, uh, and and see the Hello Girls because it it really deserves your attention. Oh, December 22nd is when it closes, so you have a few weeks. All right, so that is uh, Prospect Theater Company's production of the Hello Girls at 59 East 59 and um, 59 East 59. Every time we mention it. We are talking about how good we uh, shows are over there in this multiplex of a theater operation. Uh, I we can't talk. We I I can't remember the last time we've had a bad review out of Fifty Nineties Fifty Nine. And the so. other thing, I mean, it's always so busy. I yeah. mean, you go, you go there and there's a lot of traffic thing about uh, go upstairs, wait here, uh, not yet, now. I don't make, mean to make it sound onerous, but yeah, mm. uh, what I'm trying to indicate is how busy it is over there. Yeah, you know, but I, yeah, but actually, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I have to ask. I, I kind of have avoided going there for a while because there was a, a period there where they were not opening the house until like two minutes before each show. And I spent a lot of time standing on the stairs waiting to ha take a seat. Is that no longer true? I'm not saying that's no longer true. It's never true in the downstairs theater. The downstairs oh. theater is very <laughs> conventional where you just, but there are two upstairs and they do have to maneuvers. And I have to say, um, I would say nine times out of 10, if not nine times out of nine, uh, both theaters are booked. So yeah, you may have to wait on the stairs, but once yeah. you get inside, I think a lot of that stuff is worth uh, seeing. So, oh no, so, absolutely. I did. That's just know, uh, you know, something I noticed. It's amazing how it's always so busy there. I mean, you know, so many places have empty theaters. Not in Broadway, I'll grant you, but I mean, so many places. You know, there are weeks that go by when nothing's playing, and yet somehow the bookings just come here. And uh, there are, there's the British festival they have every year, and things come over from there. And, I mean, it, it really is a remarkable, remarkable thing. Maybe it's partly because of the location, that there's not a glut of other theaters in that area. Hmm. On the other hand, one could effectively argue that um, nobody well, – well, you do know where it is because yes. – <laughs> yeah. I'll grant you that. And it might have been very smart, and of course it's very mellifluous to 59 East 59th. But, but I, I, I really believe it's, it's the attractions that are going there. It's not the fact that, it's in, uh, that there's no, nothing around there because that's not really a residential area. You know? so it's not no, like, no, no. I, I just meant in addition in, to. Okay, fine. You yeah. know, I, I won't contest that. But anyway um, – uh, so, um, so isn't the, uh, the little bar that they have there, isn't that still like a destination in itself? 
Rather is. I mean, I, I'll admit that um, it couldn't accommodate more than really uh, 10 uh, at, at the little uh, shelf that they have there where you can put your drinks. But yes, um, it, it sort of is. Um, I, I do get the impression a lot of people um, enjoy that uh, bar on the second landing and um, and do congregate there. Yes, I, I agree with that, Michael. Uh, but uh, have we convinced you, everybody? Yeah. Um, 1959th. <laughs> All right. So next up, uh, Michael, you got to see a reading of a new musical with Richard Chamberlain called Unlikely Allies. So tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, I can't give a full report because it's still very much a work in progress, and I, I rarely get invited to readings, uh, but I had a friend involved in this one, so that's what brought me there, and I just uh, wanted to mention it because you you may well be hearing of it in the future. It's called Unlikely Allies, a new musical, and I'll just read their, their description of it. Um, Unlikely Allies is the amazing true story of how a shopkeeper from Connecticut, a French comic playwright, and a cross-dressing spy forged the alliance between France and the United States and saved America in the Revolutionary War. Uh, this is based on a nonfiction book by Richard Paul. Uh, he wrote the, the, the book on which it's based. He wrote the book for the musical. He co-wrote the lyrics with Martin Rabbit, R-A-B-B-E-T-T, and uh, the music is by Martin Rabbit. So that's Unlikely Allies, a new musical. And apparently every single thing that you see happen in this show, (laughs) incredible as it may seem, is true. Uh, Except he said uh, there's one scene at the end of a meeting between two characters that didn't actually take place. Not unlike um, the... Uh, the Patty Lapone, Christine Ebersole show, uh, whose name just went out of my head. <laughs> War paint is that War what paint? you're looking? For? War paint. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, this this is quite an uh, amazing story. And uh, in in addition to Richard Chamberlain, uh, I mean, I wanted to go just to see him. I have not seen him on stage in quite some years. I suppose the last time I saw him on stage was in Blight Spirit. Does that sound right? Um, and uh, but we also have Sal Viviano in the show. And I think a person who it must be his son, although not specifically identified as such, Alessandro John Viviano. Um, so those were the, some names that you might recognize in this reading that I went to at Pearl studios. And, um, Oh, and, and I should mention that, uh, uh, several of the actors played multiple roles, but Richard Chamberlain only played one and his role was Ben Franklin. So here we have, you know, uh, I think that's the only character who actually carried over from 1776, but uh, but we have something in roughly the same t- time period, and here's a completely different take on it, uh, played by Richard Chamberlain, no less. Um, so I'm glad I got to go to see the, this. It was really kind of amazing. So IBDB has uh, Mr. Chamberlain in uh, My Fair Lady and Sound of Music after Blythe Spirit. Oh, after uh, Blythe Spirit. After Blythe Spirit. And also something I don't think I knew, but he did the National Tour of Spam a lot. Really? <laughs> did anybody see that? Oh. It's in well, IBDB. I, I, I didn't know that oh. he did the National Tour of Spam a lot. If you are a listener and you saw Mr. Chamberlain in Spam a lot, let us know about that. That sounds fun. He played King Arthur in Spam a lot. Uh, well, I yeah, and I guess so. I guess that blight spirit was longer ago than I realized, which happens frequently was, these days. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 1987, uh, blight spirit. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. So My Fair Lady was in 94, 93, 94, Sound of Music, 98, 99. So, I did get to see him in Sound of Music, and that was when, that was towards the end of the run, yeah. if I mm-hmm. recall, when, when Laura Benanti, yeah. Benanti went in as at age 19, mm-hmm. I believe as Maria. Uh, that was uh, kind of incredible also. And you knew she was going to be a star the way she held stage oh, yeah. with him when she was telling him off in that famous, you know, you've got to pay mm-hmm. attention to your children one, uh, scene. Whoa, was she impressive. Um, and I, that's when you knew. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. So um, I, I want to uh, do a little caveat here. Um I, I know that we just talked about a reading, and Michael didn't review it uh, and things like that. Uh, 
so many people email us and contact us in many different ways to talk about why don't we cover the, a reading of their musical. And I will tell you, if you have Richard Chamberlain in your reading, uh, yes, I, we will cover it. <laughs> uh, but we, we just can't possibly, possibly cover all the readings that we get invited to. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's unworkable. So uh, also... Next up, uh, and last for this morning, uh, Michael, you got to see Shadows, a dance musical at the Connolly Theater. So tell us about uh, Shadows. Yeah, this is one of the most creative shows I've seen in a while, uh, directed and choreographed by Joey McNeely, and uh, book by Randall David Cook, music and lyrics by Edison Woods, Maxim Mostyn, and Karen Bishko, uh, created by Randall David Cook and Joey McNeely. And it's a really intriguing, uh, well, you know, I, I guess you'd call it a dance musical is the best description of it. There are sections of it featuring uh, ballet dancers, including the fabulous Irina Dvorovenko, whom our listeners know from her performances in, uh, well, probably three things, Grand Hotel and On Your Toes at Encores, and also um, The Beast in the Jungle, the off-Broadway musical The The Beast in the Jungle. Uh, This piece, Shadows, has uh, sections of ballet dancing, as I say, but also uh, contemporary uh, sections with, with actual songs by by uh, Karen Bishko. And uh, what the plot is that um, a woman is renting her apartment through a real estate agent. And uh, the woman is played by Janine DeVita. The real estate agent is played by John Arthur Green. And although they are both married to other people, they wind up having an affair. And uh, this turns out to be um, something that's not going to end well. Uh but partly because the apartment is haunted by four spirits, including uh, the woman's grandmother, uh, who was a ballerina, and that's the Irina Dvorovenko role. And uh, so there are all these uh, interesting uh, interactions between the ghosts and the living people, and uh, the question is, how is this all going to resolve itself? Uh, Joey McNeely, I think, did a really wonderful job directing, choreographing this show. It's and it's very, very creative the way the uh, the song score interacts with the with the with the ballet dancing. And uh, there are even some characters on stage in uh, who are sort of equivalent to those uh, King Kong handlers, you know, kind of ninja type characters who are there to help uh, move scenery and also to help. Uh, uh, elevate the dancers. Uh, it's it's really, really very, very creative. And it's at the Connolly Theater, which is a little bit of a trek way over on East 4th Street, but I would say definitely worth it to see this extremely, extremely creative piece. All right. So uh, that wraps it up for this morning. Uh, and that was... Uh, Shadows, a dance musical at the Connolly Theater that is running through December 15th. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including all the different things uh, like Shadows we just talked about, uh, Richard Chamberlain and Unlikely Allies. They have a GoFundMe to further develop the musical. We have a link to that in the show notes. Um, uh, on Streisand, an opinionated guide by Ethan Morden. I found that at Oxford University Press. And Peter, you got a way advanced copy. It's not going to be available to the public until April. Was well, so, that right? Uh, so yeah, and we have to see if we can get Ethan on to talk about that. That'd be oh. fun to have him in in January, February when things are quiet on Broadway. So, um, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, um, 19 musicals have received at least a couple of nominations, and some of them got wins, but they have something else in common. And rather than name all 19, I just chose one from each decade. Take Me Along from the 50s, The Happy Time from the 60s, the 1976 revival of My Fair Lady, the 81 revival of Pirates of Penzance, Ragtime from the 90s, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels from the first decade of our new millennium, and Kinky Boots from the current decade. Um, But with a dozen other musicals, they share the same commonality. What is it? And all of them had not just one, but two nominees in the Best Actor in a Musical category. So that was the answer. And Alyssa Ma was the first to get it, followed by John Moss, Josh Israel, 
Alex Lauder, Lauer, sorry, Brigadoon and Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question. A Tony-winning musical, so already we've narrowed it down to 72. A Tony-winning musical opened with a song that had decades before been one of the first Oscar nominees for Best Song. What's the song and what's the musical? Okay, so if you have an answer to that, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.